Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145. The 145th Psalm is found on page 979 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. We preached and read Psalm 145 last week. We will again preach from this passage this week. A Psalm of Praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King. I will praise your name forever, ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate abundant goodness in joyful sing, and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love, good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. We pray together. We ask for you, Holy Spirit, to be near to our hearts, to touch us, to help us to see. We pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that today the salvation would come to that house. Make a full of praise that pass the faith to all peoples and generations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to go to the altar. We need to go to the altar. greatness of God in Jesus Christ to all peoples and all generations. That's our new vision statement. And last week we talked about that we are called to be people of praise. And this week we'll focus on the second half of Psalm 145, 
passing the faith to all generations, to all peoples. What do we mean when we say that we commend the greatness of God in Jesus Christ to all peoples and all generations? The answer to that question of our mission is both upward and outward. This upward component of our mission is that we are to be grace-filled covenantal people who praise God that love has come down and love has changed us. So there's an upward component to our mission, but there's also an outward component, grace-filled kingdom living. And this is where we speak. Both when we praise, we speak, and then we are to speak to all people in all generations so that we might be faithful in our generation to pass the faith. It's as if David in this psalm has in mind a lifelong relay race, or maybe as we've just recently watched the Olympics, when they pass the torch from one site to the next, and there's some suspense and excitement about who will be the last person from that host country. And they run for a while, and then they pass that torch, that flame, it's as if David is saying, I have received that grace, that torch has been passed to me. And my job is not only to praise God that his grace has come down from heaven to heal me, but to be faithful and to pass that faith. And it's as if he's reminding the people of God, it's not just one person, it's not just one group. Every one of us has been called to pass the faith to the next generation. And this flame, this torch, this gift, verse 8 summarizes, it's the gift of God's grace. Grace has come down and grace has brought God's love and grace satisfies God's justice. Verse 8 is actually used 20 different times in the Old Testament. It's as if verse 8 became a creed for the people of God. They began to describe what it means to be the people of God. And they are people whose God's gracious character and his gracious actions deliver them from bondage as well as rule over them in his love in this new righteous kingdom. You'll see that the text progresses first from I will praise you. And then he begins to repeat, they, they will praise you. And it's moving to the end of the psalm where he says, all will praise you. From I will praise you, they will praise you, and then all will praise you. And I mentioned that Psalm 145.8 is the centerpiece of the whole message of this psalm. It was first spoken by God to Moses in Exodus 30. Three and 34. And what's interesting is it's repeated in Nehemiah when they come back, the exiles come back and they uh, rebuild the wall and they establish worship, covenant renewal. They repeat this verse. And then even when they're in the wilderness, Numbers 13, the people have rebelled and God tells Moses that he will judge the people. And Moses repeats this verse again. I think the most interesting place that this verse is repeated is in Jonah. In Jonah, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, the enemy of Israel, and preach repentance. And Jonah refuses. 
And he goes in the exact opposite direction. He says, I will not extend your grace to those people because I hate them. And he goes in the exact direction, exact opposite direction. A storm comes and Jonah begins to realize that he does not deserve to even live because he has failed God. And so he tells the sailors to throw him overboard and he has just decided that I have failed God and I don't deserve to live. The calamity comes and rescues Jonah because this sea creature swallows him up. And we're told that he's in the belly of that sea creature for three days. But we're also told what he thinks about and what he prays about. It's interesting. He, he confesses, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. And he says, I've failed. I've forfeited my opportunity. God, this is your judgment. But of course, God in his grace causes the sea creature to spit him up on to the shore. And God again gives him the command, go and preach to Nineveh. He preaches and what happens? Nineveh repents. Later in John, uh, Jonah 4, you find Jonah pouting. The Lord has relented. The people have repented. And Jonah is discontented. Sorry, I just couldn't hold back on that one. He's pouting. And what does he say to the Lord? God says, why are you pouting? He says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. You are a God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And I knew it. I would preach, they would repent, and I would be angry because you are in your nature and in your actions only able to bring about grace and healing. I mentioned that the first time that this is given is in Exodus 33. Keep your finger in Psalm 145, but turn back to Exodus 34. Moses has asked God, show me your glory. I want to see your ways and understand your ways. And God says that no man could see me fully and survive. But if you place your face in the rock, turn your back to me, and I'll let my backside pass. It's as if he says, the train of the robe will pass by. It's actually the tassel. You'll see the tassel of the train of the robe of the king of kings. It'll be more than you can even comprehend. And when God is passing by Moses, he says this, I am the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You'll notice when God declares what he's doing, coming down to act in deliverance and salvation of his people, he explains two corresponding realities about God. The first is about his love. And you notice that it says, the first uh, phrase he says there is that he says, I am a God of compassion and gracious. And that corresponds with the phrase, forgiving to the thousandth generation. 
I am a God whose heart is full of love. But then the second phrase is, I am slow to anger, and it corresponds with his justice. The guilty will not go unpunished. The consequences of their sin will spread to the fourth generation. So there's this correlation of God's love and God's justice that are in some ways at odds. How does God reconcile in his nature his love and his justice? Well, that's his grace. And you see the contrast also between his grace that blesses to the thousandth generation and judgment comes to the fourth generation. He's saying there that his grace and love is unlimited. It'll spread to that, the, the, whatever generation arises, his love will continue to spread. But he says that our sin patterns that have been passed down to us by our parents and grandparents, they will not permanently define us. They will not permanently confine us because God's love will overtake and heal even the sin patterns that have been passed to us. Now, John, when he begins the Gospel of John, picks up on this same idea. Moses asking God, show me your glory. And he starts in John 1 talking about creation. But John 1, you see quickly, is about the new creation. It's about the bursting in of heaven coming down to heal our brokenness. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The same thing that Moses asked, may I behold your glory? He says, we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten, full of what? Grace and truth. Then John says this, the law was given through Moses. He's thinking of Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. But grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. John tells us that the one who acts, the self-existent one who acts and comes down on behalf of his people, that is Jesus Christ, the incarnate one who's come down to save. Now, if you notice in this, back to Psalm 145, you'll notice this intergenerational community that's commending to the next generation God is a God of grace who acts on behalf of his people. And I want you to notice not just what they say, but who says it. So we're going to look at who they are, but just look at what they say. Verse 6, they shall speak of the mighty, awesome deeds of God. Verse 7, they shall say and celebrate pouring forth praise for his abundant goodness. Verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. And verse 12, they tell so that all men may know of his mighty acts. That's what they say, but who are they? What do we know about them? Well, verse 14 tells us that they receive help, but they are inadequate. The, the word there says that they are falling. It's a plural progressive word, which basically says they are always falling. They are constantly falling. And it says that they are falling, but he helps them and continues to help them. So they praise him. So they're falling. Verse 15 and 16 says they're needy and lacking. 
Their needs are never met completely and they're needy and they're lacking, but he delights in meeting their needs, all their needs, daily bread, ongoing, and they praise him. So they're falling, they're needy, they're lacking, and then verse 18 and 19 says they're desperate. They call for help with cries of help, and it says that the Lord is near. It says that he's within earshot, and it says that he responds like the closeness of a friend. So they praise him. He, they are falling, they are needy, they are lacking, they are desperate. And then verse 20 says they are vulnerable. They need protection. And he says, I am their protection. Now that sounds like an impressive bunch of people that could change the world, doesn't it? Falling, needy, lacking, desperate, miserable. That's why grace is so full of praise. Because this sounds like a ragtag bunch. Maybe the disciples. How would they ever change the world? How would anyone ever hear from them? But it begs the question, if we are this type of people... Do we come each week as a community of grace, not showing off that we have it together, but declaring how unworthy we are to be in God's presence? I'll come back to that later, but be thinking about that. Are we declaring by our life that we have been touched by grace? But notice, there's also a progression where the psalm begins to focus on the kingdom. And it's the righteous kingdom. It's that grace has come and will heal the world. David's not talking about his kingdom. He's now looking to this eternal kingdom. And he says this kingdom will break in and will heal the world. What does he have in mind? Well, what's obvious is that he's thinking about the Messiah's reign. And when Messiah comes, Messiah will bring healing and hope. But what he's saying is this, not just that your help and your hope is in the future. He's saying help and hope has come from the future. It's broken into our present. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ was the tearing of the veil between the mystical and the material. And now, as uh, Paul says, God, though Jesus did not hold equality with God something to grasp, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the body as a man. He breaks in. He breaks into this broken world. When Jesus teaches, he talks about the kingdom is near. In fact, many scholars say that this unmistakable, this psalm is the basis for Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. The whole Sermon on the Mount grows out of the understanding of what this psalm teaches. And that is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let your light shine in such a way that they see your good works and give glory to God. It's the righteous kingdom, and it's the outward mission. It's the move in the psalm where we have praised God for his rescue, and now we want to live under his rule in the righteous kingdom. That's why that word commend is so important. It's because, like Jesus, we're inviting people, come and see, taste and see, 
but it requires speaking. Just as praise requires speaking, we are to be His voice speaking to the nations, to all generations that grace has broken in. And the word evangel really was based on the military deployment of a herald. When a king became, um, to, came to power, they declared that from town to town. And a herald, an evangel, was commissioned to go into all the towns, to get to the center of the town, to get everybody together and declare there's a new king. We bow down to him. He is the ruler. And you and I serve him. We're told, not just in this text, but we're told throughout the New Testament that Jesus has commissioned his people to be heralds in their neighborhoods, in their families. They are to speak. We are to speak. And what are we to speak? We're to speak that the king lives. The king loves the king is coming again. Do you remember in the book of Acts, the early church was arrested. Those leaders were arrested. And they were told, stop speaking his name. Do not say his name anymore. I guess it was cancel culture long before we knew cancel culture. But they said, we will imprison you. We will kill you. Do not speak his name. What did the early church leaders say back? They said, I don't know if you'll put me in prison. I don't, it's not my uh, ability to keep my life safe. But I do know this. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. And you will spread the gospel first in Jerusalem, where you are, Judea, Samaria, to the inner, uttermost parts of the world. Now, what is a characteristic of a witness? A witness has seen, and a witness speaks what he or she has seen. Could it be true that one of the reasons that we don't speak is we're not seeing, we're not hearing. God's grace is not reshaping our hearts so that we live in praise. You know, every worship service from the beginning to the end is crafted prayed over and prepared so that you would experience the Holy Spirit's touch sometime during this service. God's Spirit to touch you, to remind you, to see something that you haven't seen. You should be praying every service. Holy Spirit, all during the service, pray for those that are behind you, in front of you. Holy Spirit, let us see, touch us, Change us. Make your grace real to me. It is this outward message of the righteous kingdom. But notice when he says the righteous kingdom is coming, it's not a social message. It's a spiritual message. He's talking about God making things right in the world. That's what righteousness is. And God first makes things right with man. We're reconciled in relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then it does have social elements. Then we begin to seek to be reconciled to our fellow men. But it's first spiritual before it is social. Now this doesn't mean that we should not care for the poor. But our mission is to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. This means that we should help in any neighborhood uh, needs that are around us. 
But our mission is to speak that the gospel is the only message of salvation. You know, the first century church understood this, and they lived this gracious message. I'd like for us to just reflect for a minute on our church. These last two weeks, we've been talking about the new vision and values that the elders have given us to guide us. Are we a community of grace? Are we commending the righteous kingdom as witnesses? Those are two goals that we aspire to as a church. Well, what would it look like if we were a culture of grace? Sam Albury says that grace is not only to be a formal doctrine, it's to be a felt reality. When you come in this place, when you're with your brothers and sisters, is it a gracious connection? He said that outsiders could easily think, I'm not good enough to be there in the church. I've blown it. I've messed up. He said the early church culture was you know how messed up I am. I'm a real mess because I go to that group and that's a group of real messes and they all get together and they're reminded that God loves them anyway. I want us to grow. The elders want us to grow as a culture of grace. I am a mess. I still am. But I belong to Jesus and I'm now his problem to make me right I want to grow, I trust him, but he loves me even in my limits. John Newton said this, the writer of Amazing Grace, I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, I'm not what I hope I'll be in another world, but I'm still not what I used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that your prayer? Change me. Let your grace mold me and make me. When I finished my doctoral work at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, they strongly suggest, they don't require, but that every doctoral student takes a class called the Pastor in Self-Care. Archibald Hart from South Africa founded the uh, Christian Psychology Program at Fuller Seminary. He taught this class and shaped the structure of the class. He's recently gone to be with the Lord. But he talked about depression and burnout in pastors and how it was an epidemic even now. He says, pastors rarely see the crash until they crash. But he talked about the two main causes of burnout and depression. He says, the first is the feeling of being obligated. The feeling of being obligated to everyone in every situation and every need. And the pastor cannot govern himself from this feeling of obligation. The second thing he said is pastors that have unresolved relational conflicts. They have not been able to work through the relational conflicts with others that in family or in church that distance themselves and eventually begins to chip away at their inner core. Now I thought about that. Pastors who teach grace to congregations who believe grace, who cannot live in grace. It's an epidemic in the church. You know, 
we celebrated 200 years of God's grace and goodness in 2004. They wrote a book about all that God had done called Cloud of Witnesses. Well, if you were here in 2004, we were the most dysfunctional, we were the most divisive, we were the least grace-filled, we were the most angry congregation, the most proud, and God humbled us. And God told us, I oppose the proud. And we've been seeking to walk in grace, but I'll tell you, pride creeps in and it will not give a notice and we won't see it until it's done its work. And I call you, we can't be a culture of grace if we're prideful. But I also want to speak to those who are struggling to live in grace. You know, despair is equally destructive to your own soul. Despair tells you, you don't deserve grace. You have failed. You are guilty. You do not hear God, God, full of grace and compassion. You have these intrusive thoughts in your head. Lord, Lord, who is demanding and never satisfied with you. The Lord, the Lord, who is distant, uncaring, and, un and ashamed of you. That is not the Holy Spirit. Those negative intrusive thoughts that cause you to live in despair are from the evil one. There's some here that are afraid to share their struggles, but you're dealing with sin struggles. I want you to know you need to bring it into the light. You need to talk to a brother or sister. You need to share it with a parent or a friend. You need to know that this body is a trusted, gracious community. I want to speak to the older members of our congregation. I said that we want to be an intergenerational church, but just let me speak to you for a second. If you've been a member here for over 10 years or you are, would categorize yourself as older, let me just say this. For the sake of our younger members, will you continue to fall more and more in love with Jesus Christ? May the end of your journey be a deeper, intimate communion with Jesus. Would you be more transparent about your past and your present struggles than you've ever been before? Parents, will you be more transparent about your struggles with your children than you've ever been before? For them to believe that grace can belong to them, they need to know that grace is healing you. Will you be more gracious in your relationships, more willing to sacrifice, more willing to overlook the offense? Would you seek to be less demanding and selfish and bitter and be willing to sacrifice your time? But I want you to know, we will not be a church that obligates anybody to anything. And when we do, we will seek to repent. You are called to follow your Savior, but I want you to know, even in the ministry fair, we do not want to be a people of obligation. Now that can be a frightful thing for a pastor to tell people when his salary is dependent on their generosity, when the church ministries are dependent. But I want you to know, it is interesting how the New Testament shifts the emphasis in giving away from tithing to joyful, generous, sacrificial giving. He says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. It's because grace is more powerful than obligation. Grace will envision 
a kind of love and care that will turn your heart into a person who says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, just a few more things here. Bear with me for just a minute. We want to be intergenerational and not simply multi-generational. We have in our generations about 500 people above 55, about 500 from 55 to 40, about five or 639 to 19, and about 650. So we basically are a broadly multi-generational church. We long to be intergenerational. We long for you to have relationships with people that are not just in your age and stage and just like you. Historically, the reason why communities flourished was because they lived intergenerationally. And it's really been the last 100 or 150 years where, and really outside of the West, where people did not live within proximity of their parents and their grandparents, their aunts and their uncles. And that fragmenting of the social fabric is fragmenting our interselves. We need intergenerational relationships. What's interesting about the New Testament, the Old Testament says that we're to pass the faith and the families are to include, they are to include the orphan and the widow and the stranger in their midst. But in the New Testament, it's not the earthly families. It says they're included, but the stranger and the orphan and the widow are the central members and participants of the family of God. Jesus said, who is my mother? He that does the will of God is my mother and my brother. And so we want to build intergenerational relationships. When the elders talk about diversity, they are talking about all kinds of diversity. Relationship with people who are not like you. Economic, socioeconomic, interest, racial diversity. And I will mention this, that we desire to grow our ministry and influence as a church to a broader racial demographic than just white Christians. Now that's because, first and foremost, in this nation, already those that are under 18 years old, there's more diverse minorities than majority under 18. This is where this nation is going. But we're in a city where 50% of Richmond County is African American, and we have a growing Hispanic population. Chinese are here working at the medical college. And we want to be a ministry for all people in all places. And we want to be a ministry to singles, non-married people. That's a growing demographic in this country. If you're single, there's non-married, there's probably times when you feel like church is fitted for the family. But where do I fit? I want you to know, non-married person, we love you. We want you to feel and experience this kind of community together. In fact, Chris Williams and I and John Barrett have a ministry with young adults, a meeting with young adults tomorrow to talk about the vision for the next generation and how they play an important part. Just a few things, if y'all bear with me just for a few, a few minutes. The Lord is doing some amazing things. If you walk into the commons there, there's a picture of our new members. It's 137 faces. All the people who have joined us since the pandemic separated us last March. Just think about that. In one of the most difficult times in our church's life, God has brought 
an army of people, that's more than some churches in America, and they're here because God's not finished with us yet. 20 or so were at a new members class yesterday that are joining with us to see God advance this mission. God has sent Jonathan and Crystal Stanberg to lead International Link. What a gift to minister to Hispanics, Chinese that are working uh, Fort Gordon, the military base. We see opportunities all around us, and we're going to have an evangelistic series this fall. You'll hear more about that. Equipping the church to pass the faith to the next generation. We have Sunday nights in the fall where a pastor will preach a sermon that you can bring your neighbors and you can invite your family members that would not normally come to hear a Bible-centered message. They'll hear a gospel-centered message so that we can pass the faith. One more thing as we close. I'm asking you all to be prayer partners. If you go on the app and you sign up to be a prayer partner, you commit to pray for 15 minutes for this ministry and this vision and to pray 15 minutes a day for the next 145 days. Now, each day if you sign up, a specific prayer request will be sent to you. You sign up through the app. But I just want you to think about this. If 500 of our members pray for 15 minutes every day, then that's 125 hours of unending prayer. If you pray for 15 minutes, those 500 minutes pray for 145 days, we will have prayed over this church 300 days, a year's worth of prayer, bathing this church and its mission in prayer. I'm praying for 145 converts, and I haven't got the faith to put a time limit on it, but I'm praying that God would use us to lead 145 people to himself let me close with this. Martin Luther was on his deathbed. And there at Mansfield, he could barely speak. But he crawled out of his bed and he wrote two paragraphs. The last two paragraphs ever written by Martin Luther. And he marveled at the miracle of the birth of the church. A bunch of unworthy, unprepared people that had taken the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he ended with a phrase that he wrote in Latin, and then he wrote it in German, vis vind a vetler. We are all beggars. Now that wasn't the first time Luther said, we are all beggars. Every week when the people of God gathered to hear him preach, he reminded them, we are all beggars. But he gave them this image that you bring an empty knapsack to church. You have nothing to offer. And sometime during the service, a jewel of grace will be dropped. You put it in your knapsack. A golden reminder of God's love will touch your heart. You put it in your knapsack. You never leave worship empty-handed. He fills you up with his grace. And then those beggars speak to people. And they point where they have found the bread. You know, the three most powerful, I told the new members class this yesterday, the three most moving moments in our worship service for me are not uh, three, uh, three moments in the sermons. It begins in the invocation. And it's a very moving 
time when the liturgist invites us to raise our hands. Now, you may not be comfortable raising your hands. You may be new and you may wonder, why do we raise our hands? What's so moving about this is that we're declaring nothing in our hands we bring. We're empty-handed. We're beggars. But you're not far off. You've come down. You're near. You've brought grace. The second moment that is extremely moving is when we all get down on our knees. Together, the people of God say, we are beggars, but you welcome us to your throne of grace. And then the benediction. The benediction is really a commission. And what it says is now this grace that has been given you are God's hands and feet. You are the messengers. The Reformation did not just refine the message. It empowered the messengers to go to the end of the earth and spread the good news, commending the greatness of God in Jesus Christ to all peoples and all generations. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled we're thankful and we ask you to give us this vision that we would be a people, community of grace, and we would commend your righteous kingdom that can only be found when grace touches our hearts. Fill us to that vision and that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.